Chapter 3 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 1, Joan of Naples by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Night fell, and from the Molo to the Mergellina, from the Capuana Castle to the hill of St. Elmo, deep silence had succeeded the myriad sounds that go up from the noisiest city in the world. Charles of Durazzo, quickly walking away from the square of the Correggi, first casting one last look of vengeance at the Castel Nuovo, plunged into the labyrinth of dark streets that twist and turn, cross and recross each other. In this ancient city, and after a quarter of an hour's walking, that was first slow, then very rapid, arrived at his ducal palace near the church of San Giovanni al Mare. He gave certain instructions in a harsh, peremptory tone to a page who took his sword and cloak. Then Charles shut himself into his room, without going up to see his poor mother, who was weeping, sad and solitary, over her son's ingratitude, and like every other mother, taking her revenge by praying God to bless him. The Duke of Durazzo walked up and down his room several times like a lion in a cage, counting the minutes in a fever of impatience, and was on the point of summoning a servant and renewing his commands when two dull raps on the door informed him that the person he was waiting for had arrived. He opened at once, and a man of about fifty, dressed in black from head to foot, entered, humbly bowing, and carefully shut the door behind him. Charles threw himself into an easy chair, and gazing fixedly at the man who stood before him, his eyes on the ground and his arms crossed upon his breast in an attitude of the deepest respect and blind obedience, he said slowly, as though weighing each word, "'Master Nicholas of Malazzo, have you any remembrance left of the services I once rendered you?' The man to whom these words were addressed trembled in every limb, as if he heard the voice of Satan come to claim his soul. Then, lifting a look of terror to his questioner's face, he asked in a voice of gloom, "'What have I done, my lord, to deserve this reproach?' "'It is not a reproach. I ask a simple question.' "'Can my lord doubt for a moment of my eternal gratitude? Can I forget the favours your excellency showed me?' Even if I could so lose my reason and my memory, are not my wife and son ever here to remind me that to you we owe all our life, our honor, and our fortune? I was guilty of an infamous act, said the notary, lowering his voice, a crime that would not only have brought upon my head the penalty of death, but which meant the confiscation of my goods, the ruin of my family, poverty, and shame for my only son that very son sire for whom i miserable wretch had wished to ensure a brilliant future by means of my frightful crime you had in your hands the proof of this i have them still and you will not ruin me my lord resumed the notary trembling i am at your feet your excellency take my life i will die in torment without a murmur but save my son, since you have been so merciful as to spare him till now. Have pity on his mother. My lord, have pity. Be assured, said Charles, signing to him to rise. It is nothing to do with your life. That will come later, perhaps. What I wish to ask of you now is a much simpler, easier matter. My lord, I await your command. First, said the duke in a voice of playful irony, you must draw up a formal contract of my marriage. At once, your excellency. 
You are to write in the first article that my wife brings me as dowry the county of Alba, the jurisdiction of Grati and Giordano, with all castles, fiefs, and last dependents thereto. But, my lord, replied the poor notary, greatly embarrassed, do you find any difficulty, Master Nicholas? God forbid, your excellency, but... Well, what is it? Because, if my lord will permit, because there is only one person in Naples who possesses that dowry your excellency mentions. And so? And she, stammered the notary, embarrassed more and more, she is the queen's sister. And in the contract you will write the name of Marie of Anjou. But the young maiden, replied Nicholas timidly, whom your excellency should marry is destined, I thought, under the will of our late king of blessed memory, to become the wife of the king of Hungary, or else of the grandson of the king of France. Ah, I understand your surprise. You may learn from this that an uncle's intentions are not always the same as his nephew's. In that case, sire, if I dared, if my lord would deign to give me leave, if I had an opinion I might give, I would humbly entreat your excellency to reflect that this would mean the abduction of a minor. Since when did you learn to be scrupulous, Master Nicholas? These words were uttered with a glance so terrible that the poor notary was crushed and had hardly the strength to reply. In an hour the contract will be ready. Good, we agree as to the first point, continued Charles, resuming his natural tone of voice. You now will hear my second charge. You have known the Duke of Calabria's valet for the last two years pretty intimately. Tommaso Pace, why, he is my best friend. Excellent. Listen, and remember that on your discretion the safety or ruin of your family depends. A plot will soon be on foot against the Queen's husband. The conspirators no doubt will gain over André's valet, the man you call your best friend. Never leave him for an instant. Try to be his shadow. Day by day and hour by hour come to me and report the progress of the plot, the names of the plotters. Is this all your excellency's command? All. The notary respectfully bowed and withdrew to put the orders at once into execution. Charles spent the rest of that night writing to his uncle, the Cardinal de Perigord, one of the most influential prelates at the court of Avignon. He begged him before all things to use his authority so as to prevent Pope Clement from signing the bull that would sanction André's coronation, and he ended his letter by earnestly entreating his uncle to win the Pope's consent to his marriage with the Queen's sister. "'We shall see, fair cousin,' he said as he sealed his letter, which of us is best at understanding where our interest lies? You would not have me as a friend, so you shall have me as an enemy. Sleep on in the arms of your lover. I will wake you when the time comes. I shall be Duke of Calabria perhaps some day, and that title, as you well know, belongs to the heir to the throne. The next day and on the following days a remarkable change took place in the behavior of Charles towards André. He showed him signs of great friendliness cleverly flattering his inclinations and even persuading Friar Robert that, far from feeling any hostility in the matter of André's coronation, his most earnest desire was that his uncle's wishes should be respected, and that, though he might have given the impression of acting contrary to them, it had only been done with a view to appeasing the populace, 
who in their first excitement might have been stirred up to insurrection against the Hungarians. He declared with much warmth that he heartily detested the people about the queen, whose counsels tended to lead her astray, and he promised to join Friar Robert in the endeavor to get rid of Joan's favorites by all such means as fortune might put at his disposal. Although the Dominican did not believe in the least the sincerity of his allies' protestations, he yet gladly welcomed the aid which might prove so useful to the prince's cause, and attributed the sudden change of front to some recent rupture between Charles and his cousin, promising himself that he would make capital out of his resentment. Be that as it might, Charles wormed himself into André's heart, and after a few days one of them could hardly be seen without the other. If André went out hunting, his greatest pleasure in life, Charles was eager to put his pack or his falcons at his disposal. If André rode through the town, Charles was always ambling by his side. He gave way to his whims, urged him to extravagances, and inflamed his angry passions. In a word, he was the good angel or the bad one, who inspired his every thought and guided his every action. Joan soon understood this business, and, as a fact, had expected it. She could have ruined Charles with a single word, but she scorned so base a revenge, and treated him with utter contempt. Thus the court was split into two factions, the Hungarians with Friar Robert at their head and supported by Charles of Durazzo, and the other side all the nobility of Naples, led by the princes of Tarentum. Joan, influenced by the grand seneschal's widow and her two daughters, the countesses of Tilizzi and Marconi, and also by Donna Cancha and the Empress of Constantinople, took the side of the Neapolitan party against the pretensions of her husband. The partisans of the queen made it their first care to have her name inscribed upon all public acts without adding Andres. But Joan, led by an instinct of right and justice amid all the corruption of her court, had only consented to this last after she had taken counsel with André de Zernia, a very learned lawyer of the day, respected as much for his lofty character as for his great learning. The prince, annoyed at being shut out in this way, began to act in a violent and despotic manner. On his own authority he released prisoners. He showered favors upon Hungarians and gave especial honors and rich gifts to Giovanni Pipino, Count of Altuaniera, the enemy of all others most dreaded and detested by the Neapolitan barons. Then the counts of San Severino, Mileto, Tilizzi, and Balzo, Calanzaro, and Sant'Angelo, and most of the grandees, exasperated by the haughty insolence of Andre's favorite, which grew every day more outrageous, decided that he must perish, and his master with him, should he persist in attacking their privileges and defying their anger. Moreover, the women who were about Joan at the court egged her on, each one urged by a private interest in the pursuit of her fresh passion. Poor Joan, neglected by her husband and betrayed by Robert of Cabane, gave way beneath the burden of duties beyond her strength to bear, and fled for refuge to the arms of Bertrand Artois, whose love she did not even attempt to resist, for every feeling for religion and virtue had been destroyed in her own set purpose, and her young inclinations had been early bent towards vice, just as the bodies of wretched children are bent and their bones broken by jugglers when they train them. Bertrand felt himself uh, adoration for her surpassing ordinary human passion. When he reached the summit of a happiness to which in his wildest dreams he had never dared to aspire, the young count nearly lost his reason. In vain had his father, Charles of Artois, who was Count of Air, a direct descendant of Philip the Bold, and one of the regents of the kingdom, attempted by severe admonitions to stop him, while yet on the brink of the precipice. Bertrand would listen to nothing but his love for Joan and his implacable hatred for all the queen's enemies. 
Many a time at the close of day, as the breeze from Posilippo or Sorrento, coming from far away, was playing in his hair, might Bertrand be seen leaning from one of the casements of Castel Nuovo, pale and motionless, gazing fixedly from his side of the square to where the Duke of Calabria and the Duke of Durazzo came galloping home from their evening ride, side by side, in a cloud of dust. Then the brows of the young count were violently contracted. A savage, sinister look shone in his blue eyes, once so innocent. Like lightning, a thought of death and vengeance flashed into his mind. He would all at once begin to tremble, as a light hand was laid upon his shoulder. He would turn softly, fearing lest the divine apparition should vanish to the skies. But there beside him stood a young girl, with cheeks aflame and heaving breast, with brilliant liquid eyes. She had come to tell how her past day had been spent, and to offer her forehead for the kiss that should reward her labors and unwilling absence. This woman, dictator of laws and administrator of justice among grave magistrates and stern ministers, was but fifteen years old. This man, who knew her griefs, and to avenge them, was meditating regicide, was not yet twenty. Two children of earth, the playthings of an awful destiny. Two months and a few days after the old king's death, on the morning of Friday the 28th of March of the same year, 1343, the widow of the Grand Seneschal, Philippa, who had already contrived to get forgiven for the shameful trick she had used to secure all her son's wishes, entered the queen's apartments, excited by a genuine fear. Pale and distracted, the bearer of news that spread terror and lamentation throughout the court. Marie, the queen's younger sister, had disappeared. The gardens and outside courts had been searched for any trace of her. Every corner of the castle had been examined. The guards had been threatened with torture so as to drag the truth from them. No one had seen anything of the princess, and nothing could be found that suggested either flight or abduction. Joan, struck down by this new blow in the midst of other troubles, was for a time utterly prostrated. Then, when she had recovered from her first surprise, she behaved as all people do if despair takes the place of reason. She gave orders for what was already done to be done again. She asked the same questions that could only bring the same answers, and poured forth vain regrets and unjust reproaches. The news spread through the town, causing the greatest astonishment. There arose a great commotion in the castle, and the members of the regency hastily assembled, while couriers were sent out in every direction, charged to promise twelve thousand ducats to whomsoever should discover the place where the princess was concealed. Proceedings were at once taken against the soldiers who were on guard at the fortress at the time of the disappearance. Bertrand of Artois drew the queen apart, telling her his suspicions which fell directly upon Charles of Durazzo, but Joan lost no time in persuading him of the improbability of his hypothesis. First of all, Charles had never once set his foot in Castel Nuovo since the day of his stormy interview with the queen, but had made a point of always leaving André by the bridge when he came to the town with him. Besides, it had never been noticed even in the past that the young duke had spoken to Marie or exchanged looks with her. The result of all attainable evidence was that no stranger had entered the castle the evening before except a notary named Master Nicholas of Melazzo, an old person, half silly, half fanatical, for whom Tommaso Pace, valet de chambre to the Duke of Calabria, was ready to answer with his life. Bertrand yielded to the queen's reasoning, and day by day advanced new suggestions, each less probable than the last to draw his mistress on to feel a hope that he was far from feeling himself. But a month later, and precisely on the morning of Monday the 30th of April, a strange and unexpected scene took place, an exhibition of boldness transcending all calculations. The Neapolitan people were stupefied in astonishment, and the grief of Joan and her friends was changed to indignation. 
Just as the clock of San Giovanni struck twelve, the gate of the magnificent palace of the Durazzo flung open its folding doors, and there came forth to the sound of trumpets a double file of cavaliers on richly caparisoned horses, with the duke's arms on their shields. They took up their station round the house to prevent the people outside from disturbing a ceremony which was to take place before the eyes of an immense crowd, assembled suddenly, as by a miracle, upon the square. At the back of the court stood an altar, and upon the steps lay two crimson valet cushions embroidered with the fleur-de-lis of France and the ducal crown. Charles came forward, clad in a dazzling dress, and holding by the hand the queen's sister, the princess Marie, at that time almost thirteen years of age. She knelt down timidly on one of the cushions, and when Charles had done the same, the grand almoner of the Dura house asked the young duke solemnly what was his intention in appearing thus humbly before a minister of the church. At these words, Master Lickenloss of Milazzo took his place on the left of the altar, and read in a firm, clear voice, first the contract of marriage between Charles and Marie, and then the apostolic letters from His Holiness, the Sovereign Pontiff, Clement the Sixth, who in his own name, removing all obstacles that might impede the union, such as the age of the young bride and the degrees of affinity between the two parties, authorized his dearly beloved son, Charles, Duke of Durazzo and Albania, to take in marriage the most illustrious Marie of Anjou, sister of Joan, Queen of Naples and Jerusalem, and bestowed his benediction on the pair. The almoner then took the young girl's hand, and placing it in that of Charles's, pronounced the prayers of the church. Charles, turning half round to the people, said in a loud voice, Before God and man, this woman is my wife. And this man is my husband, said Marie, trembling. Long live the Duke and Duchess of Durazzo, cried the crowd, clapping their hands, and the young pair, at once mounting two beautiful horses, and followed by their cavaliers and pages, solemnly paraded through the town, and re-entered their palace to the sound of trumpets and cheering. When this incredible news was brought to the queen, her first feeling was joy at the recovery of her sister, and when Bertrand of Artois was eager to head a band of barons and cavaliers, and bent on falling upon the cortege to punish the traitor, Joan put up her hand to stop him with a very mournful look. "'Alas,' she said sadly, "'it is too late. They are legally married for the head of the church, who is moreover by my grandfather's will the head of our family, has granted his permission. I only pity my poor sister. I pity her for becoming so young the prey of a wretched man who sacrifices her to his own ambition, hoping by this marriage to establish a claim to the throne.' Oh, God, what a strange fate oppresses the royal house of Anjou! My father's early death in the midst of his triumphs, my mother so quickly after, my sister and I the sole offspring of Charles I, both before we are women grown fallen into the hands of cowardly men who use us but as the stepping-stones of their ambition. Joan fell back exhausted on her chair, a burning tear trembling on her eyelid. "'This is the second time,' said Bertrand, reproachfully, "'that I have drawn my sword to avenge an insult offered to you. "'The second time I return it by your orders to the scabbard. "'But remember, Joan, the third time will not find me so docile, "'and then it will not be Robert of Cabane or Charles of Durazzo that I shall strike, "'but him who is the cause of all your misfortunes.' "'Have mercy, Bertrand. "'Do you not also speak these words?' Whenever this horrible thought takes hold of me, let me come to you. This threat of bloodshed that is drummed into my ears, this sinister vision that haunts my sight, 
let me come to you beloved and weep upon your bosom beneath your breath cool my burning fancies from your eyes draw some little courage to revive my perishing soul come i am quite unhappy enough without needing to poison the future by an endless remorse tell me rather to forgive and to forget speak not of hatred and revenge show me one ray of hope amid the darkness that surrounds me hold me up my wavering feet and push me not into the abyss such altercations as this were repeated as often as any fresh wrong arose from the side of andre or his party and in the proportion as the attacks made by bertrand and his friends gained in vehemence and we must add in justice so did joan's objections weaken the hungarian rule as it became more and more arbitrary and unbearable irritated men's minds to such a point that the people murmured in secret and the nobles proclaimed aloud their discontent andre's soldiers indulged in a libertinage which would have been intolerable in a conquered city they were found everywhere brawling in the taverns or rolling about disgustingly drunk in the gutters and the prince far from rebuking such orgies was accused of sharing them himself his former tutor who ought to have felt bound to drag him away from so ignoble a mode of life rather strove to immerse him in degrading pleasures so as to keep him out of business matters without suspecting it he was hurrying on the denouement of the terrible drama that was being acted behind the scenes at castel nuovo robert's widow donna sancha of aragon the good and sainted lady whom our readers may possibly have forgotten as her family had done seeing that god's anger was hanging over her house and that no counsels no tears or prayers of hers could avail to arrest it after wearing mourning for her husband one whole year according to her promise had taken the veil at the convent of santa maria delta croce and deserted the court and its follies and passions just as the prophets of old turning their back on some accursed city would shake the dust from off their sandals and depart sandra's retreat was a sad omen and soon the family dissensions long with difficulty suppressed sprang forth to open view the storm that had been threatening from afar broke suddenly over the town and the thunderbolt was shortly to follow on the last day of august thirteen forty four joan rendered homage to Amaric, cardinal of st martin and legate of clement the sixth who looked upon the kingdom of naples as being a fief of the church ever since the time when his predecessors had presented it to charles of anjou and overthrown and excommunicated the house of suabia for this solemn ceremony the church of santa clara was chosen the burial place of neapolitan kings and but lately the tomb of the grandfather and father of the young queen who reposed to right and left of the high altar joan clad in the royal robe with the crown upon her head uttered her oath of fidelity between the hands of the apostolic legate in the presence of her husband who stood behind her simply as a witness just like the other princes of the blood among the prelates with their pontifical insignia who formed the brilliant following of uh, the envoy there stood the archbishops of pisa bari capua and brindisi and the reverend fathers ugolino bishop of castella philip bishop of cavallon chancellor to the queen all the nobility of naples and hungary were present at the ceremony which debarred andre from the throne in a fashion at once formal and striking thus when they left the church the excited feelings of both parties made a crisis imminent and such hostile glances such threatening words were exchanged that the prince finding himself too weak to contend against his enemies wrote the same evening to his mother telling her that he was about to leave a country where from his infancy upwards he had experienced nothing but deceit and disaster those who know a mother's heart will easily guess that elizabeth of poland was no sooner aware of the danger that threatened her son than she travelled to naples 
Arriving there before her coming was suspected. Rumors spread abroad that the Queen of Hungary had come to take her son away with her, and the unexpected event gave rise to strange comments. The fever of excitement now blazed up in another direction. The Empress of Constantinople, the Catanese, her two daughters, and all the courtiers whose calculations were upset by André's departure hurried to honor the arrival of the Queen of Hungary by offering a very cordial and respectful reception, with a view to showing her that, in the midst of a court so attentive and devoted, any isolation or bitterness of feeling on the young prince's part must spring from his pride, from an unwarrantable mistrust, and his naturally savage and untrained character. Joan received her husband's mother with so much proper dignity in her behavior that in spite of preconceived notions, Elizabeth could not help admiring the noble seriousness and earnest feelings she saw in her daughter-in-law. To make the visit more pleasant to an honored guest, fetes and tournaments were given, the barons vying with one another in display of wealth and luxury. The Empress of Constantinople, the Cantonese, Charles of Duras, and his young wife all paid the utmost attention to the mother of the prince. Marie, who, by reason of her extreme youth and gentleness of character, had no share in any intrigues, was guided quite as much by her natural feeling as by her husband's orders when she offered to the Queen of Hungary those marks of regard and affection that she might have felt for her own mother. In spite, however, of these protestations of respect and love, Elizabeth of Poland trembled for her son, and obeying a maternal instinct, chose to abide by her original intention, believing that she should never feel safe until André was far away from a court in appearance so friendly, but in reality so treacherous. The person who seemed most disturbed by the departure, and tried to hinder it by every means in his power, was Friar Robert. Immersed in his political schemes, bending over his mysterious plans with all the eagerness of a gambler who is on the point of gaining, the Dominican who thought himself on the eve of a tremendous event, who by cunning, patience, and labor hoped to scatter his enemies and to reign as absolute autocrat, now falling suddenly from the edifice of his dreams, stiffened himself by a mighty effort to stand and resist the mother of his pupil. But fear cried too loud in the heart of Elizabeth for all the reasonings of the monk to lull it to rest. To every argument he advanced, she simply said that while her son was not king and had not entire unlimited power, it was imprudent to leave him exposed to his enemies. The monk, seeing that all was indeed lost, and that he could not contend against the fears of this woman, asked only the boon of three days' grace, at the end of which time, should a reply he was expecting not have arrived, he said he would not only give up his opposition to André's departure, but would follow himself, renouncing forever a scheme to which he had sacrificed everything. Towards the end of the third day, as Elizabeth was definitely making her preparations for departure, the monk entered radiant showing her a letter which he had just hastily broken open. He cried triumphantly, "'God be praised, madame! I can at last give you incontestable proofs of my active zeal and accurate foresight!' André's mother, after rapidly running through the document, turned her eyes on the monk with yet some traces of mistrust in her manner, not venturing to give way to her sudden joy. "'Yes, madame,' said the monk, raising his head, his plain features lighted up by his glance of intelligence, Yes, madame, you will believe your eyes, perhaps, although you would never believe my words. This is not the dream of an active imagination, the hallucination of a credulous mind, the prejudice of a limited intellect. It is a plan slowly conceived, painfully worked out, my daily thought and my whole life's work. I have never ignored the fact that at the court of Avignon your son had powerful enemies. 
but I knew also that on the very day I undertook a certain solemn engagement in the prince's name, an engagement to withdraw those laws that had caused coldness between the Pope and Robert, who was in general so devoted to the church, I knew very well that my offer would never be rejected, and this argument of mine I kept back for the last. See, madame, my calculations are correct. Your enemies are put to shame, and your son is triumphant. Then turning to Andre, who was just coming in and stood dumbfounded at the threshold on hearing these last words, he added, Come, my son, our prayers are at last fulfilled. You are king. King? repeated Andre, transfixed with joy, doubt, and amazement. King of Sicily and Jerusalem, yes, my lord. There is no need for you to read this document that brings the joyful, unexpected news. You can see it in your mother's tears. She holds out her arms to press you to her bosom. You can see it in the happiness of your old teacher. He falls on his knees at your feet to salute you by this title, which he would have paid for with his own blood had it been denied to you much longer. And yet, said Elizabeth, after a moment's mournful reflection, if I obey my presentiments, your news will make no difference to our plans for departure. Nay, mother, said Andre firmly, you would not force me to quit the country to the detriment of my honor. If I have made you feel some of the bitterness and sorrow that have spoiled my young days, because of my cowardly enemies, it is not from a poor spirit, but because I was powerless and knew it. To take any sort of striking vengeance for their secret insults, their crafty injuries, and their underhand intrigues. It was not because my arm wanted strength, but because my head wanted a crown. I might have put an end to some of these wretched beings, the least dangerous maybe, but it would have been striking in the dark. The ringleaders would have escaped, and I should never have really got to the bottom of their infernal plots. So I have silently eaten out my own heart in shame and indignation. Now that my sacred rights are recognized by the church, you will see, my mother, how these terrible barons, the queen's counselors, the governors of the kingdom, will lower their heads in the dust. For they are threatened with no sword and no struggle. No peer of their own is he who speaks but the king. It is by him they are accused. By the law they shall be condemned and shall suffer on the scaffold. Oh, my beloved son, cried the queen in tears. I never doubted your noble feelings or the justice of your claims, but when your life is in danger, to what voice can I listen but the voice of fear? What can move my counsels but the promptings of love? Mother, believe me, if the hands and hearts alike of these cowards had not trembled, you would have lost your son long ago. It is not violence that I fear, my son. It is treachery. My life, like every man's, belongs to God, and the lowest of spiri may take it as I turn the corner of the street, but a king owes something to his people. The poor mother long tried to bend the resolution of Andre by reason and entreaties, but when she had spoken her last word and shed her last tear, she summoned Bertram de Beau, chief justice of the kingdom, and Marie, duchess of Durazzo, trusting in the old man's wisdom and the girl's innocence, she commended her son to them in the tenderest and most affecting words. Then drawing from her own hand a ring richly wrought, and taking the prince aside, she slipped it upon his finger, saying in a voice that trembled with emotion as she pressed him to her heart, "'My son, as you refuse to come with me, here is a wonderful talisman, which I would not use before the last extremity, so long as you wear this ring on your finger. 
neither sword nor poison will have power against you you see then mother said the prince smiling with this protection there is no reason at all to fear for my life there are other dangers than sword or poison sighed the queen be calm mother the best of all talismans is your prayer to god for me it is the tender thought of you that will keep me forever in the path of duty and justice your maternal love will watch over me from afar and cover me like the wings of a guardian angel elizabeth sobbed as she embraced her son and when she left him she felt her heart was breaking at last she made up her mind to go and was escorted by the whole court who had never changed towards her for a moment in their chivalrous and respectful devotion the poor mother pale trembling and faint leaned heavily upon andre's arm lest she should fall on the ship that was to take her from her son for ever she cast her arms for the last time about his neck and there hung a long time speechless tearless and motionless when the signal for departure was given her women took her in the arms half swooning and andre stood on the shore with the feeling of death at his heart his eyes were fixed upon the sail that carried ever farther from him the only being he loved in the world suddenly he fancied he beheld something white moving a long way off his mother had recovered her senses by a great effort and had dragged herself up to the bridge to give a last signal of farewell the unhappy lady knew too well that she would never see her son again at almost the same moment that andre's mother left the kingdom the former queen of naples robert's widow donna sancha breathed her last sigh she was buried in the convent of santa maria delta croce under the name of clara which she had assumed on taking her vows as a nun as her epitaph tells us as follows here lies an example of great humility the body of the sainted sister clara of illustrious memory otherwise sancha queen of sicily and jerusalem widow of the most serene robert king of jerusalem and sicily who after the death of the king her husband when she had completed a year of widowhood exchanged goods temporary for goods eternal adopting for the love of god a voluntary poverty and distributing her goods to the poor she took upon her the rule of obedience in this celebrated convent of santa croce the work of her own hands in the year of thirteen forty four on the gist of january of the twelfth indiction where living a life of holiness under the rule of the blessed francis father of the poor she ended her days religiously in the year of our lord thirteen forty five on the twenty eighth of july of the thirteenth indiction on the following day she was buried in this tomb the death of donna sancha served to hasten on the catastrophe which was to stain the throne of naples with blood one might almost fancy that god wished to spare this angel of love and resignation the sight of so terrible a spectacle that she offered herself as a propitiary sacrifice to redeem the crimes of her family end of chapter three recording by john van stan savannah georgia